Today's episode is very proudly brought to you by InReachCo, Australia's first exclusively regional, rural and remote allied health job platform. InReachCo was created by allied health professionals for allied health professionals and is committed to connecting Australian communities with the allied healthcare workers they need. For a simple and interactive way to explore current regional and remote positions or for businesses wanting to explore job advertisement opportunities, head to www.inreachco.com.au. The links will also be in the show notes. G'day guys and welcome to Holly the OT podcast. My name is Holly and I'm an occupational therapist looking to create a judgment-free zone for all OT students, new grads and early year therapists. Join me as I give my honest opinions on the highs and the lows and the ins and the outs of being an OT. Before I start today's episode, I'd like to acknowledge the Uwalari people who are the traditional custodians of the land this episode was recorded. G'day guys, welcome back to another episode of Holly the OT Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's episode is part two of my little new grad guide to the NDIS, where I'm answering all your questions that you sent through after the last episode and over on my question box on Instagram. And yeah, I'm just excited to answer your questions and thank you everyone who has sent questions through. But before I get into that, let's go straight into my highs and my lows for the last fortnight. So I actually recorded part one a fortnight ago and I was like yeah I'm going to record this episode straight away I didn't I went on holidays instead um, and I only posted the episode a couple of days ago so it, it all, all the timeline is out of whack but I'm here and I'm, I'm ready to do it so it's been two weeks since I recorded the last episode and my high is obviously that I went on holidays I was away on Fraser Island the weather was perfect we had good mates around us we were camping and we had an Airbnb as well and we was just up the coast and swimming and and hanging out with mates and just all that good stuff so that is undoubtedly my high. My low is just, I guess, the offside of that. You know, when you come back from holidays and like you've got to unpack and then you've got to, you know, get back into the routine of things. And my routine out here is so great and I love it, but it's just always that like transition, you know. And I went back to my partner's house in Newcastle. So we do long distance and unpacked everything there and then had to repack everything to come out here. So I just feel like it's been a shambles. But that's okay. It's definitely a first world problem and I'm totally fine. But I was like, oh, it's been so good. I have to think of a low. Um, But yeah, I'm just keen to get back into it, back at school this week, seeing all my little friends and just doing some really good therapy before I wrap things up. I've got about 40 days left out west, which is really crazy and really sad actually to say out loud, but I'm just making the most of it. Absolutely loving the time out here. But yeah, starting to wrap things up, starting to pack things up and excited for the next adventure. But let's get into the episode or your NDIS questions. So question number one that I got, and I got this a few times in different ways, but what's the best way to learn about the NDIS? As we know, and especially when I was going through uni, you really don't learn about the NDIS because it is so new. And obviously it takes a while for curriculums to change, but I think it's becoming more of a thing um, from the start of uni, but it's really not until you're out working that you start learning about the NDIS and everything that is involved. So the best ways that you can learn about it is by doing what you're doing. By listening to this podcast, you're choosing to learn about the NDIS. Yes, which is awesome. So gold star, good stuff. 
but it's also one of those things that you need practical experience in. And a lot of situations arise that are very unique and it's not until you are in that situation and you're mitigating that situation that you're learning about it because every case is so different. So it's one of those things that, yes, you can learn about by doing extra things, but you also just need to sort of stick it out and with experience you will learn. There's also some companies popping up with some really good trainings and like one-hour webinars or sort of longer-term trainings on very specific NDIS things and overarching NDIS things. So there's two companies that I know about uh, that are really, really prominent. One of them's Verve OT and the other one is Otuition by Optimal Living. Now, they're two that do sort of webinar and online courses. So Verve OT do very specific ones. I think they've got heaps on like how to prescribe specific equipment or what report to write for this situation. Whereas um, Otuition is very like overarching SDAs and SILs and how you can support that. And I think they're more work at your pace modules. So there's definitely courses out there that you can do. And I will link both of those in my show notes. I'm sure there's plenty of others as well, but there definitely is opportunity to do further learning if you want to. But I would wait until you're in a position or you see what your employer and the business you're working for has to offer for you um, before you commit to any courses. But just keep in mind that there are definitely some out there to support that. But unfortunately, you just got to stick it out and get all your experience and it will all slowly start making sense. Question number two was, how can I buy therapy equipment for my PEDS clients? Like, how can I buy them sensory tools? So there's two questions. One was PEDS equipment and one was sort of sensory things. And it's actually really simple. Uh, It all depends on if there's funding allocated in their plan for it. And if there's not and you need something, there's a whole process for that as well. Um, But you look on their core support. So think back to the last episode where we went through core supports. And in that core support is there's usually a little bucket called consumables. And consumables are funding for any sort of little bits and bobs that you can consume, (laughs) which doesn't really make sense. But... Uh, usually it's like $500 is the allocated amount. I had a plan the other day that had $1,500 for consumables in it. And that was because she was not toilet trained and she needed to buy nappies as well. And yeah, they always state that it can be assistive technology to assist with achieving your goals. So I always argue back to my parents like, hey, like we've got, well, not argue, but um, explain you know, gross motor is one of their goals. We can get gross motor equipment. So we can get some climbing things. We can get some tunnels. We can get things like that. And if it's sensory, NDIS is a bit iffy on sensory. So you always have to tie it back to emotional regulation as well. But we know that that there's sensory equipment. So Lycra and um, fidgets and all things like that, that are going to benefit those goals. So the process is really simple. If you have a self-managed client, they can just go and buy the equipment themselves. And of course, it has to be reasonable and necessary and it has to be related to their NDIS goals. But if you decide there is something, they just go and buy it. They go and buy it and they claim it as if they're claiming any other like therapy service. Plan managed. So if they're a plan managed client, two ways that it can happen. So you can generate an invoice. So you go through like one of the sensory websites. My favorite is Sensory Studio. I absolutely love Erin and she's incredible, Uh, but there's so many out there. So you go onto the website and you sort of do a little shopping spree. You get all the things that you want and then you go to the checkout. And when you go to checkout, every company, Penny will have a different way of doing it, but you essentially generate an invoice. And on that invoice, it needs to have the NDIS number, the participant's name, delivery address, and their plan manager information. And then that invoice gets sent to the plan manager, plan manager pays it, 
and then the goods are delivered. Now, out west, we have a really weird postal system, so I sort of just do it for my families and get it all sent to our office um, just to save confusion with the post, and then I give it to them at their next session. So you can do that within your business, um, or the parents can just do it themselves. If they're capable of you know, going onto the website and picking the right things and making sure that it's all reasonable and necessary and within goals, the parents can do that too. Um, the process works pretty similarly. In situations like that, and same with self-managed as well, you often need to just write a little letter of support. Um, If it comes to that participant getting audited, the NDIS might say, hey, why did you buy this? What relevance does it have to your goals? And if there's an OT letter of support sort of justifying that, it makes it super easy. Um, I find with the plan managers that I deal with mostly, things that are under $100, they don't tend to ask for a letter of support. I don't know if that's just a coincidence or they're just not super worried about it, but anything over $100 definitely needs a letter of support. So I just got a swing um, purchase for one of my little ones. She uh, has a vision impairment, so she can't safely access the swing in the local community. So we're able to justify that that is going to benefit her goals at home to have access to a swing at home. But generally speaking, a swing is not something that would get funded because there's swings in the community. So things like that are what the NDIS are going to question in their auditing process. But everything can be justified with clinical reasoning. And if you don't feel comfortable recommending something, you don't have to write a letter of recommendation. And you can explain to parents why you're not going to do that. Because it's just, you've got to remember, it comes back on you as the recommending therapist. If they get audited and they say, the OT told us to get it, it'll come back on you. So just be mindful of that. If you have an agency-managed participant, it works the same as uh, an agency-managed therapy service. So you can only purchase the equipment through an agency-registered provider. So there's some therapy equipment places that are agency-registered. And they go through sort of a similar accreditation process that a therapy business would. And you just do the same thing, generate an invoice, upload it to the portal, and NDIA will pay it. Same again, if it is equipment related to therapy, you need to provide a letter of recommendation. I hope that sort of makes sense. It's sort of um, definitely depending on if the funding is available, the consumable funding. And in a situation where it's not and you think it's something that is desperately needed, then you can go down the route of reviewing a plan and a change of circumstances, uh, which I can, I'm going to get into in a little hot second. But yeah, just keeping in mind that it's got to be related to the goals. It can't just be any old toy or any old piece of equipment. It's got to be NDIS therapy related. Question number three. Now, there was a few questions that came in from acute OTs. Pop off acute OTs. Thanks for tuning in. Sometimes I forget that um, there's other OTs out there that might be listening to this. I just am so narrow-minded and thinking, yeah, NDIS, PEDS, that's the only people that are interested in what I've got to say. So I apologize if everything I say is not geared towards you at all because I have no idea about being an acute OT and I take my hat off to you because that is hard work. But there was a few questions I got about how can acute OTs support a change of needs. So if you have a participant who is NDIS registered and then they have a medical event that's left them in hospital or a disability-related event that's left them in hospital and there's been a change of their their care needs and their situation. So I guess it would depend if they're a participant of the NDIS first or not. Uh, and I guess first and foremost is if they're not a participant of the NDIS, you would support starting that application. And I believe in hospitals it falls back on the role of the social workers with the support of the OT, but to get that plan off the ground is generally from the support workers, 
not support workers, social workers, ah, social workers. But if it is a situation where where they have an NDIS plan and their needs are more so than what they came into hospital, like maybe they were getting weekly therapy services and uh, a support worker that took them out on a Friday afternoon, but suddenly they need like one-to-one care and I guess an example might be if they've had a stroke or if it's a mental health situation and they're not as independent as they were when they came into the hospital. If there's an OT involved, contact the OT and see if they already have things in motion. It could be that there's already a plan review happening. It could be they've already done a functional capacity assessment and that's already rolling. And I would just communicate mostly with the community OT that's already involved If there isn't an OT that's involved, and again, this would be supported with you through the social worker of the hospital, but you would complete what's called a change of circumstances. So a change of circumstances is a section 48 review. And essentially it means that at any point in the plan, you can say my participant has needs different to when they originally got their plan and we need support now. So it's more of an urgent thing. It's not something that can wait for three months, four months, five months time when their plan is being reviewed. It's a change of circumstances that needed needs to happen now. They might need support workers now. They might need to go into supported independent living now. And I say now, but it doesn't happen now, unfortunately. With the NDIS, it all depends sort of who picks it up on the other end with how quickly it happens. But you know, sometimes it's really, really quick. Sometimes it's not. And there's no time frame for that, which is super frustrating. In my experience, other people might have more positive experiences based on where you are. Um, where I am out west, everyone's short-staffed. Everything takes a little bit longer. And it's just one of the parts of being rural. But essentially, you would complete a change of circumstance, which with the support of the social work would be a report or a, a letter that is sent to the LAC, the local area coordinator, which is found on the front of their plan. And I would imagine that you would have access to their plan in some capacity if you know they're an NDIS participant. But then if not, and that participant doesn't have support, um, doesn't have capacity, sorry, to support your you contacting uh, the LAC, I would just go through inquiries um, at ndis.gov.au. That's just the generic email. And just see if you can get through someone there, which, again, takes time. And I find that's the trickiest transition between acute and community is that things happen really, really quickly in acute and things need to happen really, really uh, quickly. You're in a hospital, like that's how it goes. But community and NDIS, it doesn't happen like that, which is super, super frustrating, but just something to be mindful of. And if there isn't a community OT involved, I would definitely refer to them as soon as possible. Most OTs have wait lists these days, we know that, but if it's something to support discharge planning, the community OT is the way to go because I guess they know the service is available, they know what can that they can do to support, and if they see a referral come through for a discharge, they're likely to bump that up their wait list a little bit more, um, obviously because there's more of an urgency with that. There was another question that came through, and I'm going to sort of tie these together um, from how can acute OTs best communicate with community OTs? And I guess the vibe I got from this was if there has been an issue in the past, and I can't speak on behalf of all community OTs because, you know, there's bad ones amongst all of us, but my experience with acute OTs is that they sort of have the same urgency from the hospital and they expect that community OT has the same quick pace quick decisions, quick urgency, and we would love it to be that way. We would love things to happen quickly and we would love things to get done overnight. But unfortunately, in community, it doesn't work that way and everything is really, really slow. And the situation I had with an acute OT, and I think she was just stressed and it was a really stressful situation, so I tried not to take it personally. But, you know, she called me up one day. She found my number and 
um, she called me up and my participant was in the hospital and he had quite a physical disability and we were in the process of doing major home mods and getting that approved and we were doing equipment upgrades and wheelchair upgrades and it was all happening. And she rang and she sort of was very abrasive and she was like, why hasn't this been done? This participant needs this and this and this and and he shouldn't be at home without this and this and this and almost was like why haven't you thought of this? And I had to let her down very gently to say, hey, we have thought of this. We've been working on this for the last six months and we've had NDIS applications knocked back. We've had people leave. We've, you know, it just doesn't work that quickly. And we sort of came to a mutual agreement and she came back around. But I just, it was very hard to engage with her at the start because she was coming at me like, why isn't this done? Why isn't this done? Why isn't this done? And I know that is definitely just a one-off situation and every other acute OT I have dealt with is beautiful and it was just a matter of urgency and it was just a matter of, of frustration from her end and I totally understand that. But just keep in mind that things do happen a little bit slower in the community, not by anyone's request. No one wants it to happen slowly, but there's so many other variables that impact the speed of things. So just keep that in mind and we're all here to help. We're all doing our absolute best and any community OT that you deal with will be more than happy to work with you to come to the best decision and discharge planning for your patient in hospital. Question number, I can't count so I have no idea what we're up to. It's not that hard, Holly, come on, whatever we're up to. Quite a few questions about this topic and it's what to do if you're not happy with the funds. So hypothetically, you have a client, you write a report for them and you request weekly therapy and you get the plan back and the participant's only been funded for fortnightly therapy. Let's just do that as as an example. And you have a chat with the family, have a chat with whoever's involved in the participant's life and you decide, nope, really not happy with 26 hours of therapy, fortnightly therapy, you want to review. So it's called a plan review, or these days they're calling it a plan reassessment. Now that is called a section 100. Section 100, that's just the NDIS term. You don't need to refer to it as that, but essentially there's, I think it's 25 decisions, 25? Yeah, 25 decisions that the NDIS can make that can be reviewed. And in this situation, the decision that you would be wanting reviewed is the allocation of capacity building funds. You're not happy with the amount, you want it to be reassessed. So what you do is you contact the NDIS. So out west, we have a really good relationship. And I I say, I keep saying out west, out west, out west, because that's just what I know. And I know in cities and more metropolitan areas, it might be a little bit different, but essentially I would contact our LAC out west. We have a really great relationship with her and say, hello, we're not happy with this plan. Can we review it? And we would ask her what supporting documents she needs. Sometimes the LACs will look at a plan and say, no, I think we can get this over the line. Like, I think we can review it um, and you won't need to provide anything else. It also depends on how recently their last assessment was and how recently their last big report was. So you might've only done a quick review report and they haven't been reassessed for a little while. So they might say, hey, go back and do a reassessment, write a bigger report, then we'll review. Now this can only be done in the first three months. So if you are in the first three months of a plan and 
and then you can review the decision. If you get a new participant that comes on board with you, maybe they're six months into their plan and they've not had therapy before and you look at the plan and you say, oh no, there is not enough. This person needs so much more. Then you would do a change of circumstances. So that is a section 48 that I mentioned before, which is a change of circumstances. So plan review section 100, change of circumstances section 48. So they're just done at different times and they're just called different things. And yep, same thing again with the change of circumstance. You contact the NDIS contact on their plan and let them know your intentions, what you want to do. Now, hypothetically speaking, you go through the review and it comes back to you and you're still not happy. So you're still not happy with the reviewed decision. The family's still not happy and you want to take it further. So the final step after that, it's called the tribunal. So the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, I'm pretty sure AAT is what they refer to it as. And it's like an external like court, I guess, almost. Like it's people that aren't involved in the agency. It's people that are a third party and then they review it all together. I've only ever had one plan go to an AAT. It's quite a long process as well. Um, but yeah, they just review it and it's third party. So it's not the same people that you've been dealing with. It's whole fresh eyes. They look at it a whole new way and you then just justify what you need. Often that the therapists aren't involved in that. You're very much from afar. You write down your recommendations and leave it from there. Um, I'm sure there's been plenty of people that are in more of an adult disability space and have gone to the tribunal for equipments and home mods and things like that. But from a paid therapy space, it's not super, super common. But yeah, so that's the, that's the process. So section 100 first, section 48 after that, and cross your fingers and hope that you get your funding. But sometimes the NDIS is literally just advocacy. You're just advocating for your participants and especially in situations where they don't have the ability to advocate for themselves or their family don't, you're just there to advocate and support. And you'll find that you do a lot of reviews often, unfortunately. The final question that I had come through was more of a pediatric focused question and it was what are the best assessments to use in an NDIS report? Now this is one of those questions that everyone will probably have a different answer to so I'm just going to give you my opinion and what I like to use and what I think works best. So whenever I'm doing a report for the NDIS, an initial report, I always like to include at least one motor skills assessment and even if it's not even if I don't even think there's a motor delay, I always like to do a motor assessment just because you never know and it just gives more gumption to your report. I'll always do a sensory assessment and I'll always do a Vineland. So there's three areas. So the Vineland is the one that I would do without a doubt. And the Vineland is completed by the parent or caregiver. Sometimes I send it off to them and they do it in their own time. Sometimes I sit with them and do it and go through question by question, just depending on the parent and the family's capacity. But the Vineland looks at all their main domains and they are activities of daily living, socialization and communication. And then there's a motor sub section of that as well, as well as a maladaptive behavior one. So I really like to do that one because it really clearly outlines the parent and the caregiver's perspective. And I will always do a sensory profile as well because 98% of the time the children are being referred to for sensory reasons and for emotional regulation. Now, the important part with the sensory profile is you can't just do a sensory profile and put the scores in. NGIS are still really iffy about sensory and because there is so much evidence still to come out about sensory and, and the role of the OT in that, 
you very much need to justify the sensory profile. So for the Vineland, I usually just put the Vineland scores in and the NDIS like that. But with the sensory profile, I'll put the scores in and then each section I will make that functional. So if there is a child who is you know, seeks proprioceptive input much more than others, I then relate that functionally. Like what is the functional impact of a child that is seeking that much input? Or for children who are sensory avoidant of tactile sensation, what is the limitation of that functionally? If I just leave that and just say, yep, they're X, Y, Z, sensory seeking, sensory avoiding, NDIS probably won't even look at it. It's all about the functional and how that is going to impact their day-to-day life. So the sensory profile that I complete is the sensory profile two, sensory profile measure two, I think it's called officially. And it's another one that is online and can be sent remotely to the families or depending on their capacity, I'll sit and do it with them as well. There is a paper version. If you're still doing the paper version, get out of the stone ages. Oh my goodness. When I first came to the business I work at now, they had all the paper forms and I said to my boss, I'm not doing a paper form. There is a digital version. And those paper forms are still sitting into our office this day. And he definitely agrees that the digital version is the way to go. And those paper forms will probably never get used. So I'm an issue. Actually, that's a lie. There's been two or three times where a parent has really wanted to use a paper version. So it is good that we have them. But the digital version is just so much easier. They can do it in their own time. They can come back to it. It's just, and I don't have to score it. The computer does it for me. So that's my favorite one to use. From a motor skills perspective, the assessment I use will depend on the child's ability and will depend on their age, obviously. I never do an assessment the first time I meet a child. I will always wait and see and to give me a gauge of what assessment I'm going to do. My three favorites, which are pretty much the three main ones, for my little my little young'uns, I'll use the Peabody. For my sort of four to six, I will use the M Fun, And then six, seven and older, I'll use the Bot. Um, and they are the three main ones that I think most places will use. I think you'll find that there's not too many others that are preferred. There are definitely other ones out there. Um, and then for school age kids, I'll throw in like a handwriting. So like a dash or a handwriting speed test or something like that. I try to do as many areas as possible just so the NDIS knows that I've covered everything and don't have too many further questions. And you'll find your own ones that you'll like to do. I used an assessment once, I forget what it was called, at a place I was working and I just didn't like it. And, you know, if that's what's available, that's what's available. But I definitely have my preferences and I definitely like to use the ones that I've been trained in for so many years and they do the job. So you'll find your own ones that you like. Everyone has their own preference, but they're my faves. All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's wrap things up there. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in their questions. I hope you were able to take something from that and I was able to help you with any of those areas. I definitely don't claim to know all the answers and there might be better or different ways of doing things, but that's just what I found has worked. So take what I say with a grain of salt if you do things differently. If there's something I've said that is wrong or you think there's a better way of doing it, feel free to message me. I'm always keen to learn, always keen to find new ways of doing things. But yeah, hope you're able to take something for that. Before I wrap it up, you guys know that we do not finish without a fun fact. And I have found the stupidest one for this week, guys. And I just found it on my phone and I've been like giggling at myself like because it's just so stupid and I don't know why I'm so amused by it. But did you know that any animal that lays an egg doesn't have a belly button? If you're an egg-laying animal, you don't have an innie or an outie. And I was thinking, I was like, what? What animals lay eggs? Chickens don't have a belly button. Emus don't have a belly button. Like they're not lying. And I don't know why it's so funny to me, but 
It is. And now I'm just picturing every other animal's belly button. And yeah, I'm, I'm amused by this and I'm going to Google some pictures. <laughs> and that is an insight into how small my mind is and how easily amused I am. So let's not cut into my belly button searching time and let's wrap this up. Thank you again so much for tuning in. And I cannot wait to bring you the next few lot of interviews that I've got coming out and hope you guys love them. Goodbye. <laughs>